Amen. Take your Bible and turn to James 4. James chapter 4 is our text tonight. Something's been just kind of rattling around inside of me all week that I want to talk to you a little bit about tonight. I want to talk to you about submitting to God. I've been thinking a lot about humility and, and submission and just, you know, the closer you get in your, the closer you get to the Lord in your walk with Him, the more you become aware of where pride seeps in to your life, the more you become aware of where the flesh is trying to rise up. And, and so this whole issue of humbling ourselves before the Lord and submitting ourselves to Him has been something I've just been trying to ponder this week. And so I'm going to ponder it with you tonight, if that's okay. Um, how many of you know that you will never be what God wants you to be until you properly learn to submit to Him? Amen. The fact that God is full of grace does not mean He excuses. Hello? And, and there is grace for everything that we've done, but there is also direction for everywhere that he's calling us to go. And so we need to put this issue of grace and submission into its proper perspective. We read here in James chapter 4, verse 7, and I'm going to use the, uh, the, the ESV version tonight. James 4, 7 says, Submit yourselves therefore to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. That statement, submit yourselves therefore to God, is the central statement of this this section of Scripture that we're going to read tonight. You notice there in that phrase, in that verse, it says, submit yourselves, therefore. And anytime you see the word therefore, you have to look at what comes right before it because everything it says from then on hinges on what has just been said, right? So he doesn't just say, submit yourselves to God. He's saying, based on everything I just told you, submit yourself to God, okay? So what did he just tell them? Well, I want, to, I want to unpack this tonight, and what we need to see tonight is that we must deal with, the own, with our own issues of the heart in order to properly submit to God so that He can bless us and lift us up, right? And so, when you, before we can, before we can su truly submit ourselves to God, we must deal with what's going on inside us. And here's what I want us to see, and we're going to read the first five verses War within ourselves leads to war with those around us. War within ourselves leads to war with those around us. Look at verses 1 through 5. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and you do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. Now, let me give you a little background on this because this is, this is a very telling few verses if we really begin to dig into this. James is writing to a group of churches in the diaspora, the dispersion of, of churches that have, have uh, gone out from Jerusalem because of persecution. So he's writing to different tribes of Christians across, across that region of the world. And he's been getting these reports. James was like one of, the, one of the higher ups in the early church. I mean, he would be what we would call in the Assemblies of God like a district superintendent. He had oversight 
of a lot of these different churches and managed them. He wasn't the apostle that, that, that planted them, but he had oversight. And so he's writing to all these churches because he had, uh, he had been receiving reports that there was a lot of bickering and a lot of um, uh, just quarreling and fights and conflict within the churches. And so he's saying to them, why are you having this? What, what is leading to all of these quarrels and all these fights among you? And so if you ever, if you ever heard somebody say this, I wish that we had a church like the New Testament church. Can I give you some good news? We do. <laughs> because the, the early church was just as messed up as the church is today, right? We think the early church was perfect, but it wasn't. It was, it was seriously messed up. Why? Because people were involved, you know? And, and anytime, anytime we, we deal with junk in the church, it's because people got junk in their lives, and whatever junk they got, they bring to church and spill it out on everybody, right? And that's some, this is not... This is not looking down on anybody. I got my own junk too. I drag my junk around with me just like you do. And so, and so he's talking about these churches with this conflict. And, and he's saying there's having these conflicts in the, in these, among the membership. And he's trying to deal with that. You know, we sometimes assume that that's just the way it is in churches. And there's nothing we can do about it. But I'm here to tell you, because Scripture addresses conflict within the church, that means that there's a solution for it. It's not enough to just say, well, that's just the way churches are. It's, a, it's, good enough to, it's good to acknowledge this is the way the churches are, but it's not good enough to say that's the way they'll always be because I'm telling you, we can do better. And so he says, he says what's it coming from? Where's it coming from? Well, he, he starts to dig into the room. By the way, before I go there, don't you just hate going into a room where there is a lot of strife? Can't you just feel it? Have you ever walked into a room and you're having a great day and you walk in the room and everybody's just sitting there just like this and you just kind of walk in and it's like cold air hits you in the face. You're like, whoo, you know, and all your enthusiasm just goes, you know, you feel it when there's strife. I wonder how many of our churches do people walk in and that's exactly what they feel. Listen, any church that is bound up with strife will not produce the righteousness of God. It will not grow, and if it does grow, it will, not, it will still not be successful because it will only be a crowd. It will never truly be a congregation. And so when the church has that kind of strife going on, it hinders the work of the Holy Spirit in the church. I say that to say this, and I'm not, and I'm not saying that we're better than any other church, but I want to tell you I believe that we have a good spirit of love here. When people walk in, they feel it. And, I, and my, and amen, amen. And I say that to, to caution all of us that we must never, ever take that for granted. That is something that we must protect and we must be very intentional about it. Because, you know, the Holy Spirit, the Bible talks about grieving the Holy Spirit. It doesn't talk about the church grieving the Father. It doesn't talk about the church even grieving the Son. But it does mention grieving the Holy Spirit on a number of occasions. The Holy Spirit is a gentleman, and if we grieve His heart, He'll back off. And so, so James is saying to us, this is really important that we deal with this, that we deal with strife and conflict in the church. So where does it come from? What is the root of that kind of strife? And notice what he says. Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? So 
these passions, or in some translations it's the word desire, that's the Greek word hedonon, from which we get the word hedonism. Now, if you don't know what hedonism is, it's this philosophy that views pleasure as the chief goal of life, that if it feels good, just do it. What, how can it be wrong if it feels so right? There's a country song in there somewhere. Right? That's hedonism. A spirit of pleasure is, is the chief goal of hedonism. And that, is, and that same root is what wars within us, the passions that are at war with. Have you ever been at war with yourself? That there's this, even Paul, the Apostle Paul said that I've got these, this conflict within me that I know what to do and I don't do it and yet I, I know what I shouldn't do and that's what I'm doing. And he says, who can deliver me from this body of sin? Thank God in my, in the, my Lord Jesus Christ can. So this passion, that, these passions that are at war within us, they, they drive us to, to, to be at war with ourselves and if, we're not, if we are not at peace with ourselves... We won't be at peace with those around us. Find someone who is constantly, find someone who, no matter where they go, they've got conflict. Ask yourself this question what's the common denominator? When somebody comes to our church for the first time, I love to ask them where they came from and, and, and find out why they left. And, and you know, most churches don't do this because they're just glad to get people in the pew. In fact, we were, I was at the district, office yesterday, off the district office yesterday, and they were talking about that, that nowadays we see a lot of churches that somebody will show up, and two weeks later they have them on the platform singing. They never bothered contacting the previous church. They never found out anything about their background. They never, never did a background check on them. This is the reason why we do background checks on people before they work with our kids. Do you understand? It's not safe to just put anybody in a position like that. But the, but the truth of the matter is that if you, if you start digging into some folks' background, they'll find that they left that church because of a conflict and they started going there because they had a conflict with the church before them and they had conflict everywhere they go. Sooner or later you have to ask the question, what's the common denominator in all these churches? It's that person. You know, it's like people say, well, I, I just can't help it. It's just the way I am. Then change. You know? But when that passion, when our passions are at war within us, it leads us to be at war with those around us. And so he breaks down what this looks like. He says, you desire and do not have. Look at verse 2 again. Put that on the screen if you would, Karen. You desire and do not have, so you murder. Well, that's kind of strong. Now, that, that word desire, it's the same word that, comes, that we get in the word lust. Lust is the desire to possess something. Murder begins with lust. And I'm not just talking about sexual lust. Lust, you can have a lust for power, a lust for money, a lust for recognition. It's, it's the exact opposite of love because love is focused on giving to someone. Have you ever, ever had, had heard of this, you know, that someone... I'm trying to think of examples that, without calling names, but, but uh, you, know, you, you hear of people that they went crazy when a, a, a girlfriend broke up with them and they tried to harm them and they said, if I can't have you, nobody can have you. I love you, honey, but if I can't have you, nobody can, can have you. That's not love. That's lust. 
Lust is the desire to possess and to control. Love is the desire to give and to lift others up. And so he says, you lust or you desire and you, and, and you do not have, so you murder. Murder is the ultimate lust. It is to take a life, to possess another life. Think about Cain and Abel. Cain wanted God's recognition that was given to Abel. Now think about this. The first murder took place over worship. And Abel's worship was acceptable to God. Cain's was not. And when God rejected Cain's worship, that desire, that lust for recognition drove him to murder his own brother. Listen, worship that has gone wrong can lead to murder. It has to do with what it is we're worshiping. The truth of the matter is Cain wasn't worshiping God. He was worshiping himself. He was seeking the same thing that Lucifer sought. He wanted to exalt himself, and he tried to use worship as a means to do it, just like Lucifer. And so, and so this, this worship gone wrong led him to murder, and, and it can do the same for us. If, if, we, if we are worshiping ourselves, if we are seeking to lift ourselves up, and we're seeking to... to, uh, to, to take a position, to take a status or to, 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 to bypass someone else to, to get the spotlight on ourselves. That is the same spirit that led Cain to murder Abel. So he says, you desire and cannot have, do not have, so you murder. Secondly, you covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. When a couple's fighting or even when a church is fighting, it's because someone or a group of someone wants their own way. Somewhere in the midst of that, and we all have disagreements, don't, don't misunderstand me. I'm, talking about, I'm not talking about having a disagreement, I'm talking about quarreling, right? When, when there is that animosity going on, when two people or two groups are fighting to have their way, it's because that there is covetousness going on, there is a desire to get what we want. Somebody wants their own way. But watch this. This is the remarkable, ironic thing about this statement. You desire, do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. And he says, but you do not have because you do not ask. Some translations say you do not ask God. So, so get this. You're going to all this trouble to get your way, to possess everything you want, to, to, to try to, to force things into your will. You're trying to finagle and scheme and manipulate. He said, if you would just ask, God would provide for you. In other words, stop trying to do this on your own. Let God do it. For, take it to Him. And this is where the church world often gets off track because we try to do things in our own strength. We try to do it by our own wisdom and we try to finagle things to make it work. And all the time is God, God's sitting there saying, you know, I've got all the resources you could use right up here if you just ask me for it. It's waiting on you. You don't have because you don't ask. But watch this. Well, here's the thing, first of all, God is more, more than willing to bless us. What father does not want to bless his kids? 
And so we scheme and we plot, what if we just ask? And then we think, well, maybe God might say no. (laughs) Well, he says, he may do that because he says, you ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. We're back to hedonism again. And so our motives matter. Our motives matter in our relationship with God, our relationship with others. Our motives matter even in our relationship with ourselves. One of the mistakes that we've made, you know, the the Pentecostal and charismatic world has brought a lot, I think, in theology to prayer about standing in faith and believing God for the impossible, having faith for the miraculous and all that. Thank God for all of that. But if we're not careful, we can get off into an extreme where we say, well, if we do it the right way, confess it enough and bind and loose enough and get the right formula that we can get whatever we want from God. I've heard people say it just like that. And yet it's very clear right here. Sometimes God says, no, you got a bad attitude. I mean, if my kids come to me and say, I want this and I want it now. I want that new PS4 and I want all the newest games and you're going to get it for me and I'm going to sit here and say it over and over again until you get it. I'm like, you know, you can say it all you want until you're, until you're you know, dry in the mouth, but I'm going to bed. <laughs> right? Listen, God, our attitude matters with God. And, and so our motivation matters. So when we are asking God for something, He wants to bless us, but... Our heart has to be his first. You know, Lydia, I I don't think she'd mind me saying this, ordered her a purity ring that's supposed to come tomorrow for Valentine's Day. She's been wanting that ring for a while. And and it's a nice ring, and I've I've been wanting to give it to her. Why wouldn't I want to bless her with that? Because she's she's not just wanting the pretty ring, she's wanting to make that statement that I'm going to remain pure until I'm married. I'm going, to, I'm going to save myself. I'm like, girl, you want 10 carats or 12? I mean, you know, you just, you know, right? Because her motivation is right in that. If we are at peace within ourselves and our passions are not at war within us, if we're not coveting, if we're not desiring, you know, more than what we have... If we're at peace with ourselves, what difference does it make whether we get the recognition we want? What difference does it make whether or not we get our way? I, I, I love tech. You know I do. And our, my district superintendent, we're not good for each other in this regard. Because he gets all the latest tech. And I was down to the district office yesterday, as I mentioned, and, and he, he got the newest iPad, the one with the face recognition. Yeah, and Sylvia says, uh-oh, she works with me long enough, she knows. You know, and, I, and I'm like, you know, I'm kind of like uh, Tim Allen. I look at this thing, I'm like, oh, <laughs> you know. I, and, and, and there's this meeting, I, I could think, you know, I'll be driving right by the Apple store on the way home, you know. <laughs> and, and, you know, but there's this, we get lost in that desire for what we don't have. The truth of the matter is, what difference does it make if I don't get the latest iPad? The one I have from two years ago still works just fine right? I've got more technology than I know what to do with. You know, what difference does it really make? If I don't get my way on something, 
Can I keep on living? You know, can I survive? Sure. I'm not going to die if I don't get a new iPad. I'm not going to stop breathing, you know, if I don't get my way at home sometimes. I mean, we can survive. Why is it that we think we're going to die if we don't get our way? It's because of that passion, those passions at war within us. It's like if we have this gaping hole in here of this unmet need, it gives room for those passions to fight against each other. But when we feel that with our love for God and we can become content in Him, there's no room for those passions to fight against each other. And those passions are never satisfied. That's the thing about hedonistic behavior. It's never, ever satisfied. The drink today that makes you feel good will only get you started tomorrow. The hit that makes you forget the, about the world will only make you more desiring another hit the next time. It's, it's never, ever enough. Think about it like this. Eve in the Garden of Eden was tempted by Satan. She had it made. She and Adam had a paradise. And we focus on, don't you eat that fruit of that tree? We focus on that. But really, that's not the emphasis that God gave them. They said, you are free to eat from any tree in the garden. You, you rule over the earth. You just you, you reign and, and be my representatives on the earth. Name all the animals. You're, you're, I mean, you are, we, would, we could say it like this, you know, you are the king of the planet, you know? I mean, that's not the word God used, but it's just that idea. Like, you take it, you roam. Enjoy, it's yours. By the way, one thing, just one, don't eat from that tree right there in the center of the garden. I think that would be a pretty good deal. But then when Satan came in and, and began to twist God's word and say, you'll not surely die. God doesn't want you to eat of that because he knows when you do, you'll know good and evil and you'll be just like him. And it was the same lie that Lucifer, that Satan bought into and he thought, I will ascend to be like the Most High. Now he's using that same lie to Eve saying, God's holding out on you. If you had this one thing, then you'd be happy because you'd be like God. God doesn't want you to be like that. And soon she stops seeing all of this that's around her in the garden and she's fixated on this one thing where God said no. How often are we just like that? That is when our passions are at war within us. We forget everything that we have that's good. And we think, I want it my way or no way at all. And ultimately, this puts us at war with God himself. Look at verses 4 and 5. <clears throat> you adulterous people. Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose that it is to no purpose that the Scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us? So he's saying that friendship with the world, the Greek word for friendship is philia, from which we get Philadelphia, city of brotherly, brotherly love, right? That's what the word comes from. Phileo is brotherly love. It means to be fond of someone. This is not saying that we can't be fond of people who are not Christians. He's saying that we are if, that, that friendship with the world, the Greek word is cosmos, from which we get cosmos, 
He's saying an affection for the world system, an affection for the ways of the world, a, a, a longing for, a, a desire for, a fondness of the ways of the world puts you in opposition against God. See, when it talks about the world in this context, when it's talking about the cosmos, it's talking about the world system that is under Satan's control. The Bible calls him, calls Satan the God, little g, of the world. And so he says, if we're flirting with that, we're making ourselves an enemy of God. And and, and notice this, This this is lover's language here. He says that he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us. So James says if we grow fond of worldly things, we place ourselves in enmity with God. Enmity means hostility, a bitter attitude, or antagonism. Hatred that's concealed. um, Hatred that is latent. We put ourselves in an antagonistic, angry position against God. And to describe this, he uses a very strong term. He says, you adulterous people. That's strong. Why would he say adulterous? It's because God wants our passion to be for him. And for us to flirt with the world, for us to, to flirt with the world system, is like, is like a lover flirting with someone besides their spouse. I know this is a downer so far, isn't it? I promise it gets better. <laughs> This is setting the stage for what he tells us next. He tells us that this enmity against God makes us the enemy of God because God wants, us to, wants our passion to be for Him. And we be, listen, we become like that which we have affection for. So when God says, hey, I want your attention on me. I want your heart toward me. I want your passion on me. Does that sound like a high demand? I mean, that's, that's pretty demanding if you think about it, if you look at it from a worldly perspective. But he doesn't stop there. He lays all this out here and says, you guys are adulterous for acting the way you're acting. You're at war within yourselves. You're covetous. You're murderous. You're adulterous people is what you are. And he lays all this out to where the people, James Reddington, is like, oh my, what am I going to do? I'm going to die. This is terrible. And then James suddenly changes gears and says, but, verse 6, but he gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. I love all this, how he just rips them to shreds and then says, but God gives more grace. Everybody say, more grace. Boy, more grace. That sounds good, doesn't it? Listen, God offers more grace when we need it. God sets this high standard for His people. But then He gives grace that is greater than the high demands that He's made. See, we we get off balance either by going all grace to where we say, you know, it doesn't matter what you do, just ask God to forgive you, it'll be okay. Or you can do like a Catholic, you know, live whatever you, however you want to do it, however you want to live. And then as long as you go and you confess it to a priest, it's okay. You do a few Hail Marys, live like you want to live. Well, no. That's not how it works. 
Or we go to the other extreme. It's like, you know, God is a harsh God. He's a demanding God. He's a jealous God. And you've got to work hard. And you've got to be live just right. And if you mess up, God's got this huge bat. And he's going to knock you over the head. And, and he's looking for any opportunity to, 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 to kill you because of your sin. And that's miserable. That's, 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 a, that's a heavy load that we can't bear to carry. The balance is, yes, God places high demands on His people, but then He gives us the grace we need and then some to be everything He's called us to be. 2 Peter 1.3, look at this. By His divine power, God has given us everything we need for living a godly life. We have received all of this by coming to know Him, the one who called us to Himself by means of His marvelous glory and excellence. You see, God does not say, okay, I tell you what, I'll accept you if you straighten up right now and you work really hard. Maybe, just maybe I'll let you in, but I'm watching you. Now, that's not the spirit in which God says it. God took the whole brunt of our judgment and punishment upon His own Son at the cross. Glory and excellence is what He gives us. And through that sacrifice, through Christ's resurrection, that new life is is imparted to us, and He gives us divine power. His divine power. By His divine power, we have everything we need to live a godly life. You say, I just, I can't, I can't do it. It's too hard. I just can't. I know you can't. None of us can on our own. But if you have Christ in your life, you have everything you need to be everything God wants you to be. Now, <clears throat> I love that statement. He gives more grace. Then he says, Therefore, it says, he's quoting from the Old Testament, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. (coughs) So, this grace, this more grace, who gets it? Who can receive this grace? The humble. God opposes the proud, stands in opposition to the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. What is humility exactly? <clears throat> you know, it's, it's hard to define exactly what humility is. The thing about humility, though, even though we can't really give it a good textbook definition, we know it when we see it, don't we? It's like, you know, I don't, I don't know what it is about that person, but he's just humble. She, she just walks in humility. I, what does that mean? It, it means that they walk like that. <laughs> It's like the guy Brother Doc used to talk about. He said he was the humblest guy in the whole church, and they finally decided to recognize him for who, you know, all that he had accomplished and everything. And so they gave him this humility button. The first time he wore it, they had to take it away from him. <laughs> so it, it's hard to define, but it's there. When we, and, 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 and when we, when we walk in humility, we, you know, it's, like, it's like when you look at... When you look at an open stream, we have this low place in the back of our yard. Our, our yard kind of goes down a hill, and, a, and, then, and, and there's a hill at the back in the woods there, and it, kind of, it meets right there at the foot of the, at, the, at the base of the trees. It's the lowest place on our property. 
When it rains a lot, we get a nice little pond in the back. Now, we don't get ponds at the high part. This is one good thing about our houses. We don't have to worry about it flooding because water goes to the low place, right? The same thing is true spiritually. Living water goes to the lowest place. When we lower, and this is actually the definition of the word humble. It means literally in the Greek, it means to bow oneself low. To not lift oneself up. When we bow ourselves low before the Lord, then we put ourselves in a position to where His living water can flow to us. So the question then is, how do we humble ourselves? How do we appropriate this grace that He offers us? And that brings us back to where we started. We submit ourselves to God. We humble ourselves by submitting ourselves to God. Let's pick up at verse 7 again. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Now again, remember what therefore is therefore. All this that we just talked about, warring within our members, desiring, not having, coveting, and all this stuff, and adulterous people, yada, yada, yada. He gives more grace, though. Therefore, submit yourself to God. Resist the devil, and he'll flee from you. Draw near to God, and He will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched, and mourn, and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning, and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and He will exalt you. Now, now don't miss the progression here. Our inner turmoil leads to conflict with others. Therefore, God gives, uh, uh, therefore God gives more grace... Therefore, we submit ourselves to God, and we receive that extra grace by submitting to God. This is not easy believism, okay? This is not like I was talking about, you know, like, oh, you make mistakes, I'll shake it off. God will show you grace. You know, it's like the pastor I heard about that had an affair, had a lasting long affair, and justifying somebody else says, well, ask God to forgive me. You know, and, and, and thank God, God forgives. That's not the point. The point is this attitude, this flippant attitude. Oh, well, God's a God of grace. You're not saying God's a God of grace. You're saying God's a pushover. It's not that easy believism, that sloppy agape. That's not what we're talking about. God will forgive us. God will save us from our sin. God will not save us in our sin. Yes, I'm not saying we have to clean up before we come to Him. I'm saying we bring Him our mess and then we let Him clean us up. That when we come to Him, we say, Okay, Lord, I am submitting to You. Now, where do I go from here? We submit to God. So, you want grace? Submit to him. It's like the man who'd been running for, for years for a crime, didn't want to be caught, and finally decided, you know what? I'm going to do the right thing. And he turned himself in. Now, what does that mean exactly? To turn, to turn himself in, he's recognizing, you know what? I've been wrong, and there's a higher authority that I'm accountable to and I'm going to, lay, to bring myself before the mercies of this higher authority. 
This is what we need to do with God many times is just turn ourselves in and say, okay, God, you know what? You're right. I'm messed up. Your ways are higher than my ways, and I'm submitting myself to you. I'm laying myself on the altar to say, let your will be done in me. That's the exact opposite of what Adam and Eve did in the garden. They chose, to, instead of recognizing God's authority, they said, you know what? I've got my own authority, and it's just as, much as, just as important as yours. Isn't that what our culture is doing today? It's actually an extension of the Gnosticism that we saw in the New Testament. Gnosticism saying that, you know, this flesh is not, is not really who I am, and I can be anything I want to be. I can love who I want to love. I can, be, I can be transgender. I can be homosexual. I can be all this. You know, it doesn't matter. I'll be what I want to be because this part is not the real me. What we're doing is saying, you know what? I have authority over me. It doesn't matter who created, who created me or how I was created. I'll decide who I am. Guess what? We don't have that right. And so we submit ourselves to God. We receive His grace. What that means is we choose to place His will over our own. And we recognize that He is God and we are not. We acknowledge his authority. But what does this look like? How do we submit to God? Well, watch this. There's, there's some commands. There's three commands and there's three promises here. Watch this. We're going to go back to verse 7. In verse 7, after he says, submit yourselves to God, he says, resist the devil and he'll flee from you. We have the power to resist the devil. But it is a fight many times. You recognize resisting the devil many times is a battle. And so he says, when you submit yourself to God, there is resistance that you're going to experience. But if you will resist him long enough, he will flee from you. Well, how do you resist the devil? The same way Jesus did, using the word of God. When Jesus was in the, in the wilderness, Satan came to him three times, tempted him. And Jesus responded with three words, it is written. And in the same way, when you are wrestling with the devil, when you are, when you are trying to stand your ground and submit to God, and, you're th- and, and the enemy's coming at you, he's like, you know what? You don't need to listen to God. You can do this your own way. You can do what you want to do. You know what? I'm going to go back and I'm going to find where the word of God tells me what to do. I'm going to say, it is written. And the devil cannot stand against the written word of God. This is why it's so important that we read the Bible, not for devotional purposes, but to get it in our spirit, because that's our weapon. The Bible tells us that the sword of the Spirit is the Word of God. It's the only offensive weapon we're given. And when we fight with the Word of God, every demon in hell has to flee. Resist the devil, he'll flee from you. Secondly, verse 8, draw near to God, he'll draw near to you. That's a promise. It's a command he gives us, draw near to God. Now notice who goes first. You do. Well, if God would just show himself to me. You know, I've had people say, well, you know, if God would just prove himself. God's already proven himself. What more can he do? He gave his son for us. God has already moved toward you in the death of his son and the resurrection of his son. And so he's already taken the step toward you and he's waiting for us to take the step toward him. And when we step toward him, he says he will meet us there. And so draw near to God and he'll draw near to you. And part of, and again, what does that look like? How do we draw near to him? Well, let's read the rest of the verse. Draw near to God, he'll draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. 
Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Boy, that sounds depressing, doesn't it? But, and, and don't read this. Don't read this with a legalistic mindset just reminding us that we're worms. You know, that's, that's kind of the way we always read this. Like, you're a worm, I'm a worm, you're fish bait. I mean, you're just, you're just a worm. What you don't, don't read it like that. This is James talking to them saying that there is grace for you. And he's, he's telling them that there's a better way. But he is, he is calling them to recognize their own sin to recognize what they're dealing with inside their heart. And so, and so he, he tells them, first of all, to, um, uh, to, to cleanse our hands. In other words, stop doing what you've been doing. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. Stop sinning. If you're in a mess, stop it. Get out of it. Take a step away. Do whatever you have to do to cut yourself off from whatever it is that keeps you bound. He says, so move away from your sin. Purify your heart, you double-minded. What does that mean? Double-minded. If we were of one mind one minute, we're of another mind another minute. He says, get your mind focused on what is right. Get purified, focused, and, and, and set in one direction. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. This is, this is where I want to hang out, hang out for just a second. The closer we get to God, the more our own sin will break our hearts. When was the last time you wept over your own sin? And and I don't mean the kind of sorrow that comes from getting caught either. You know, there is a, you know, Judas was sorry that he got caught. He was sorry it blew up in his face, and it drove him to suicide. Peter was repentant, and Jesus could restore him, and he went on to lead the church. It's all in what's going on in here. When was the last time you wept over your own sin? And this is where so much of the church is missing it today. We need to stop and recognize when there is something in our lives that is keeping us from being what God wants us to be, that is something to mourn over. And then finally in verse 10, humble yourselves before the Lord and He will exalt you. So he's saying move away from your sin, get a single-minded focus, purify your heart and mind, in other words. And then he says, mourn over what, where you've been. And in doing that, that brings you to a place of humility where you humble yourselves, where you lower yourself, you bow the knee to the Lord. We bow low before Him. And He picks us up. Now, don't miss this. God opposes us when we seek to lift ourselves up. But if we humble ourselves before Him, He lifts us up. I mean, it's a better way to get there. (laughs) Do you want to lift yourself up or do you want to let God do the lifting? God can exalt you in a far better way than you can exalt yourself. 
And see, I, I think that the closer we get to God, the more we recognize just how fallible we are. I, I find that, you know, I, I've looked back on some of my early sermons. I used to prance and talk smack a lot more in my sermons when I was younger. Because, who's calling me? Shh. I think it was a telemarketer. Uh, I, I, used to, I, I, I used to have this little chip on my shoulder when I preached. Maybe I still do. I don't know. But I, I, I've, I've found that in my later years in preaching, especially since my cancer experience, I am more aware of, than ever of just how fallible I am. And that's not false humility. That's like, oh, God, I'm really messed up, <laughs> you know? And I really need you. And, and, and I think that's a good place to be. Yes. And I, I find that I, I don't have patience for peacock preachers that like to strut their stuff on the platform anymore. I, let me see somebody that's humble. Let me see somebody that is broken. And that's who God can use. And you see, when we get this right on the inside, the more we recognize this, the more our attitude towards others begins to shift. Now, this will save your marriage if you let it. Because what do we do when we're, when we're messed up in our marriages? We're typically thinking, well, he always does this. She always does that. I'm just, you know, we're focused on what the other one does wrong. When we become more aware of our own shortcomings and we begin to humble ourselves, we begin to deal with other people differently. And it's interesting to me that these last two verses, verses 11 and 12, come right after this discussion of humbling ourselves and right after talking about quarreling and conflicts in the church. In light of all this he's just said, he reads now in verse 11, Do not speak evil against one another, brothers, the one who speaks against a brother or judges as brother speaks evil against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you're not a doer of the law, but a judge. And there's only one lawgiver and judge, he who is able to save and to destroy. But who are you to judge your neighbor? Now, now think about it in this context. To pronounce judgment on someone is to exalt ourselves. Is to say, you know what? I'm superior than you. I'm, by, by, uh, by connection, I'm God to you. That's what he's saying. He says, you're pronouncing yourself to be a lawgiver and a judge, and there's only one that can do that. Now, now understand this. If we deal with the war inside of us, if we deal with this, this turmoil that we deal with all the time inside of us, this, this members warring against each other, we fix that, let God's grace fill that, humble ourselves, it fixes all this other stuff. And so submitting to God means humbling ourselves in our relationship with Him, our relationship with ourselves, and our relationships with one another. So I look at my own life and you know, I find that I, I, I'm just asking God, help me to truly be in submission to
to you. Help me, help me to walk in humility, to not, not hold myself to higher esteem than someone else. That's pride. I mean, if we, if we have trouble admitting we're wrong, if we have trouble taking correction, if we have, if we have trouble letting someone else get the accolades for a little bit, if we, have, if we have those kind of characteristics, that's the same spirit that caused Cain to rise up against Abel. But if we can humble ourselves and you and say, recognize that everything we have is a gift from God and it's by His grace that we stand, suddenly everything just becomes peaceful on the inside and peaceful with everyone else. What I'm talking about is contentment. We try to attain, whether it's position or possessions or whatever, thinking it'll bring contentment, but it never does. True contentment comes from truly submitting to God. Father, would you help us tonight to simply say yes to you in every regard of our lives, to submit ourselves to you, and God, break our hearts for the things that break yours. Help us, Lord, to see our own sin and to recognize the war within us and to lay it on the altar before you. Give us the grace, Lord, to humble ourselves that you could exalt us instead of seeking to exalt ourselves. Help us, Lord, to submit to you and be pleasing in your sight. In Jesus' name, amen.